Hey everyone, welcome to episode 73 of the Julia LaRoche Show. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, May 2nd on the heels of another bank failure here in the US, the failure of First Republic Bank. Today, we are joined by Chris Whalen. He is the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. He is a banker and an author. He writes the Institutional Risk Analyst. In this episode, Chris shares what he sees as the primary cause of the bank failures of not only First Republic, but also Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and that that blame lies at the Federal Reserve and its excessive open market intervention between 2019 and 2022 that led to these problems that we see at the banks. He also explained why most banks here in the U.S. are already insolvent on a mark-to-market basis, and he explains why the problems in the banking industry won't go away until the Federal Reserve cuts rates and why we will likely see more bank failures. I really enjoyed having this conversation with Chris. I certainly learned a lot and I think you will too. By the way, if you are new to the channel, welcome. It is so great to have you. Please be sure to hit that like button and that subscribe and that bell so you won't miss any new episodes. This show is completely free and your support will help me bring in some more great guests like Chris. And if you're listening to the podcast, uh, it's great to have you as well. Please be sure to leave a rating and a review so you can help more folks find these episodes. Again, thank you so much for your support. I couldn't do it without you. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chris Whalen. Chris Whalen, uh, Whalen Global Advisors Chairman and also author of the Institutional Risk Analyst. It is so great to see you and it's great to welcome you on the pod. Thank you so much for joining me, Chris. My pleasure, Julia. Well, I cannot think of a better person to have on at this critical moment um, this week, having uh, another bank failure, uh, First Republic Bank. And I just kind of want to start with you with a blog post that you put out around the false narrative. I want to hear your views on this matter, um, because I know you are someone who looks at banking very, very deeply. You're widely respected in this space. So let's kind of kick things off with the false narrative that you see out there. Julia, I think what you have to understand is that people in the regulatory agencies, the Fed, they're all human beings. They have to deal with what they see and the data that they have. So back in you know, December of 2018, you may recall before COVID, we had a terrible problem at the end of the year with the money markets. Uh, the market seized up because the Fed was trying to shrink its balance sheet and they didn't understand the mechanics of that, which is that every time a bond that the Fed is uh, has sitting on their books redeems, a bank deposit disappears. It's the opposite of when the Fed is buying securities. They, they increase reserves, they increase cash in the system. So they were trying to slowly winnow this down, and we had a big problem. And so the Fed kind of panicked. Uh, Jay Powell essentially said, well, we've got to provide more reserves to make sure we don't have a problem in the future. So they went big in 2019, before COVID. That's what people don't understand. They started pushing rates down. And in particular, they started manipulating the mortgage market so that the duration of mortgage-backed securities was basically cut in half in 2019. So by the time we get to the first quarter of 20, COVID and everything else, and they go even bigger, and they start buying securities with both hands, you recall, right at the end of March, um, they inflated the balance sheet, they inflated banks, all the banks got bigger because they were selling bonds to the Fed and getting cash. 
So now we're reversing that. Today, we're going through the opposite. And as we slowly winnow down the balance sheet, the outliers in the banking community, the, the funny business models that stick out, they're the ones who are going down. So first we had Silicon Valley Bank, hedge fund and drag, you know, really swinging for the fences with that mortgage-backed securities trade. Then you had Signature that had tainted itself with crypto and had a deposit run. Uh, and then finally, you had First Republic, which, again, was kind of a funny business model. They didn't really make money managing money uh, for clients. They made money selling mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and, it, you know, it was striking. So we've seen three big banks go down now as the Fed tries to reduce its balance sheet. And what this tells you is that you really can't go back, Julia. Once you put that, that cash into the system, it's very hard to take it out. And Powell and company thought that they could do a kind of conventional let's fight inflation cycle without selling assets. And they, they can't do that. So they are kind of, I think, on the horns of a dilemma. They want to fight inflation like Paul Volcker. But they have a Volcker-like scenario right now because, you know, the Fed is paying an, uh, on reserves well in the fours. T-bills are almost 5%. And bank deposit rates are still around 1, 1.5%. So it's just like the 1980s. That's where we are. So you would analogize it like the 1980s. Yeah. Last time we had benchmark rates, points above bank deposit rates, was when Paul Volcker was chairman and he was destroying the SNL industry. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of banks today, if they don't aggressively reprice, raise their deposit rates, take the pain and sell some of those securities from 2020 and 21, they're not going to make it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a lot to dig into and I'm so grateful to have your time and your expertise. And you kind of called out this risk, um, several years ago, um, this yeah. ex existential market risk created by, <laughs> um, these yeah. massive purchases of security. So my question for That's, you is, do you think this, do you think the fed knew the risk? Did they recognize it or realize it? Like, I would love to hear your thoughts there. No, I don't think so. I don't think they, they think in market terms like this. Um, the Fed exists in a world that is largely dominated by GDP modeling. Uh, that's how they come up with policy. So when you ask them to start taking into account market factors, it doesn't really fit in their analysis. They're thinking about GDP. They're thinking about employment. And they have this very elegant, very complicated model for thinking about how interest rates impact that. But the big change, Julia, was when they started buying bonds, and particularly when they started buying mortgage-backed securities. That was a terrible mistake mm. because what they've done is they've taken all this duration out of the market. The market is now distorted as a result. We had a lot of people borrowing money in 2020 and 21 at rates that they can't even think about today. So all of that production, $25 trillion worth of securities over two years, is now well out of the money. And they, people who need to roll those office building mortgages or whatever it is can't do it because rates are four or five points higher than they were originally. So I don't think the Fed thought about it in the way that they should because they just don't consider the market. And that's a, a big shortcoming if you think about it because monetary policy is implemented in the bond market. Where else are we going to go, right? So I think the Fed has to be more sensitive to the imp impact of their actions.
Mm, that's interesting. Okay. Um, you mentioned, and maybe you have more of the context that I don't have. The Fed was buying um, mortgage-backed securities, which was a mistake. And maybe this is a bit of a naive question. Why were they doing that? And were they supposed to be doing that? Is that a normal thing for the Fed to do? Technically, they can buy anything that's guaranteed by the United States. Um, but honestly, buying mortgage backs is dangerous, as you know, because what if, what's been behind all of the major crises of Wall Street for the past 50 years? When interest rate changes, you have a change in the duration of a mortgage security because people can prepay or not. I have a 3% mortgage now, Julia, that I got in 2021. I will never prepay that mortgage. I will never refinance that mortgage. It's five points out of the money now. So the result is, is that all that paper sitting on the books of the Fed that originally had a maturity of a couple of years now has a maturity of 20 years. Those bonds are going to be sitting there long after Jay Powell is gone. And that distorts the market, number one. And it also makes it very hard for the Fed to implement policy because long-term rates want to go down. I mean, every time we have any kind of a kerfuffle in markets, any you know questions about banks or whatever it is, the 10-year heads for 3%. The 10-year should be well above 4 but it can't because of all the paper that the Fed owns. You know, it, it's, a, it's a big technical issue that bond people think about a lot, but I think the Fed made a mistake going down this road. They should have always stuck to treasuries, but they wanted to do more. Remember, Janet Yellen and the rest of these people were worried about inflation being too low. And now we see the hubris and the, I think the, the mistaken, uh, you know, beliefs behind those positions have been, you know, pretty much uh, repudiated. But unfortunately, the market is so dependent on the Fed. We want these people to save us. So if we even start to think that they don't know what they're doing, we have a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that would be... No, it is a problem. Let me ask you this, because I take it that these bank failures didn't necessarily surprise you, did they? Or did, did they no. surprise you? No. When you move interest rates this much after you engaged in open market operations during COVID, where you refinance half of the mortgage market, where you refinance tens of trillions of dollars worth of corporate debt, well, guess what? Those bonds are now trading 20 points below where they were issued. So if you're a little bank and you own Ginnie Mae 2s, which were issued in 2020, you're losing money. Your cost of funds is probably above the coupon rate on that security, even though it's a AAA rated bond. It's a risk-free bond, Julia. But because of the interest rate moves that the Fed has put in place, the banks are insolvent. Basically, every bank in the U.S. is insolvent today because of the mark-to-market on their bond portfolio, number one, and also the loan book. Remember the whole loans that First Republic owns? They have a mm -hmm. coupon that's almost a point below the industry average. So when you take those loans out, even though they're pristine in terms of credit history, they don't really have a lot of defaults, but they're still so far down compared to what you could buy today that you're going to get a price in the 80s. That's a big hit for a bank. You know, banks run at 15 to 1 leverage. So when they start taking losses, the capital disappears very quickly. So no, I wasn't surprised. Wow. This is bond market 101, but Fed governors don't understand this stuff apparently. Yeah. Okay, so every bank pretty much is insolvent. Can you mm -hmm. just like can you just I want to hear more on that because um 
I expect then we haven't seen the end of this. No, what's going to happen is the short sellers in the equity market, and also I think in the, in the in the fixed income markets are looking for the outliers. They're looking for banks that have weak funding, that have a business model which is a little bit out of the norm, and they're going to attack them. This is what happened with Silicon Valley. The shorts were working on them going back to the fall of last year. So it took about four months to destabilize that bank. Signature had the crypto thing. So they had two successive quarters where deposits fell. So when you have a bank that starts losing deposits, that's when they get in trouble. That's when people start focusing on the loan portfolio. How much securities do they own? That sort of thing. And that's what's going to happen is the weaker banks out there are going to get picked on. And they're going to be the ones that go next. Mm-hmm. But, but it'll go up the food chain. We could see some other large banks go down as well, simply because they have losses on their books that they can't deal with. They, they can't write off all these securities tomorrow. It's trillions of dollars. Yeah. Um, so explain, like what again, like what the short sellers will be looking at. They'll be looking at those loan portfolios uh, for so, weaknesses. They'll, they'll look for banks that don't have a solid deposit base, that don't have a good relationship with their customers. Look at First Republic. Mm-hmm. Those deposits mostly came from people in the wealth management side. They have no loyalty to First Republic. They'll pick up and go tomorrow. On the other hand, you look at somebody like Bank of the Ozarks that I wrote about last week. It's a big commercial lender, $25 billion bank. They raised deposits. How did they do this, Julia? They paid people more money. So every bank out there has got to raise their deposit rates closer to the Fed, closer to the T-bills, right? T-bills are 5% today. So you, you have to reprice this whole market in a matter of months. Many banks aren't going to be able to do that. And that's why I think ultimately Powell's going to have to drop rates well before the end of the year. If he doesn't, we'll have more bank failure. It's very simple. And until he he comes clean, tells Congress he made a mistake in 2019 when they started really manipulating the bond markets, I don't know how we get out of this. You know, Americans aren't very good at self-criticism, especially when it comes to public officials. But this is a case where the Fed made a big mistake. They did too much for too long. And they've left the banking industry insolvent as a result. Mm-hmm. But it's not just banks. It's pension funds. It's REITs. It's anybody who owns bonds. Okay? That's a big universe. Yeah. Um, and also, like you just pointed out, kind of coming clean. And I would think, like, maybe if we just had a bit more intellectual honesty, like, maybe it had helped restore, like, trust in yeah. institutions as well. Well, let me give you an example. If you had been back in January, February timeframe before these banks failed, and you were the Fed and you thought, uh-oh, we have a problem. What do we do? The Fed could offer to finance these securities at par, at the coupon rate. In other words, if you have a Ginny Mae 2, they could only charge you 2% for the repo. They could have taken this off the table, but the Fed doesn't want to do that because they're already losing money. Their policy is generating huge losses. And they are already insolvent. If you do a mark-to-market on the Fed, the Fed's insolvent. So they don't want to make that problem any worse. And frankly, they're also worried about confidence because part of their stock and trade is trying to maintain positive confidence in the U.S. financial system, keep the bond market open. If you start, you know, admitting fault, you have a problem, right? It's like the Catholic Church, right? We never admit fault. So... Here you have a case where the the people who are responsible for managing the economy, 
keeping us on the rails, did make a mistake. And they don't know how to have that conversation, Julia. That's mm -hmm. a big flaw in the U.S. political system. We are so dependent on these agents and platonic guardians who are supposed to run things in the background, right, and not worry us with the details. Well, now we have the details in our face because uh, you have to worry about your bank. And if you have to worry about your bank, that's not good, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's the kind of thing our grandparents used to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, we shouldn't have to worry about that today. Yeah. And unfortunately, we do. And this it, is not a failure of supervision. You know, all of these business models had their quirks. Let's be fair. All, all three of these banks kind of flourished in a time when the, the Fed was buying bonds. and Credit was very muted as a concern. So now credit is going to be probably back in our face by the third quarter of this year. But we're still going to be worried about the Fed and interest rates. That's a that's a tough combination. I'm not at all sanguine about the, uh, the rest of this year. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that? I guess I suppose a lot of folks think the blame lies. At, like you said, like the lack. Uh, do you, where do you think the blame? Where are people placing the blame right now? Is it placing it on the bank management's and blaming the yes. generation mismatch? Yeah. And that's not necessarily fair. No, no, they did some really silly things. The, the guys at Silicon Valley Bank were betting the farm on a mortgage-backed securities trade, and they did this for successive years, almost four years, Julia. So no, they are not blameless, but the, okay. the thing is, is that the change in Fed interest rate policy drove all of these outliers to where you could see them. And once the, the investors and the short sellers in the equity market focused on Silicon Valley Bank and focused on their kind of atypical deposit structure uh, with their clients, Clients had a lot of non-insured, non-interest-bearing business deposits in the bank, payroll, things like that. So they ran. They were worried. Uh, Signature had a lot of big clients, too, doing things in the mortgage industry, escrow balances and, you know, paying your insurance and everything else for your clients. These are very important business applications. And when people got worried about the bank, they pulled the money out. So that's the that's the the archetype you're looking for here. You're looking for banks that are not typical, not mainstream kind of, or main street funded businesses. If they have a lot of dependence on the markets to raise money, to support them, then they're going to be vulnerable. Yeah. They're not, they're not blameless as, as you put it. Well, um, I, I mean, look at Ozark. Ozark has a main street funding base in five different States, but they're a national real estate lender. So they're kind of a hybrid. Most banks, most community banks, frankly, are fine. What you should think about in this situation, Julia, is all of the banks are competing with the Treasury, right? The Treasury is out there paying people 5% for T-bills for 90 mm -hmm. days. That's who they're competing with. This isn't a small bank, large bank thing. All banks are going to be vulnerable. We could have another large bank go down. Yeah. And they, that. Yeah, and they have to, like, rate, I guess, you know, raise, like, what they are... Um, I don't know the exact terminology, but like, you know, if, if otherwise I could just take my money, like you said, and put it into T-bills if I'm not getting much of a return on my right. money in the bank. And so they, when they have to raise, what does that mean for the bank's businesses or profitabilities, or do some just not have the ability to even like make those moves to raise because they just can't fund it? Well, they're going to have to, if they want to survive, it means net interest margins going to get squeezed this year. And it means that the, 
the period of very benevolent credit that we saw over the last five years, particularly during COVID, when they drove home prices up, they drove up asset prices, even used cars. Remember in 2021, you couldn't lose money on a used car, Julia. That's not normal. The normal loss rate on a used car loan is like 80%. So all of this is now reverted back to normal. And banks have to reprice their business to essentially compete with the U.S. Treasury. That's not a reasonable ask on the part of the Fed. And again, I think their their lack of sensitivity to how their policy is impacting the markets is striking. It really is. The fact that they can stand there and go on and on about fighting inflation while we have banks getting ready to go out of business, I think is is going to become a problem politically. How many more bank failures do you think Jay Powell can can survive, right? Mm, I give yeah. him one or two. And then I think both him and Yellen are going to step down. If we were in the UK, both of these people would be gone already. You know, the American political system is not very good at doing self-examination uh, and, and critique. And we're going to have to get better at it. Because look how fast things are moving. The thing that struck me was that FDIC didn't even have time to sell Silicon Valley Bank. They didn't even have time to sell Signature Bank. It all happened in a matter of days. And FDIC is good. When they need to sell a bank, they're very good at that. But they didn't have time. They had a little more time with First Republic. But as you can see, nobody really cared other than Jamie Dunn. Mm-hmm. You know, and does, is Jamie going to keep those wealth management clients? Probably not. You know, does he need those branches, those really pretty First Republic branches? No. Probably not. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you this too, because um, I noticed you, I follow you on Twitter. Everyone should go follow you on Twitter. Um, you put out an excerpt from the New York Times and they, you know, I'll just kind of quickly summarize, but um, they kind of quote you and they say, this problem will not go away until the Fed drops interest rates. Otherwise, we'll see more banks fail. Now, the New York Times uh, reporter, I don't know who wrote the article, said, uh, but Mr. Whalen's view is a minority opinion. The growing consensus is that the failures of Silicon Valley signature and now First Republic will not lead to a repeat of the 2008 financial crisis that brought down Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and Washington Mutual. And I think, personally, I think it's important to have minority opinions, if you will, or contrarian takes, because look, subprime back in the day, that was a contrarian um take i suppose the folks who are shorting some time so i want to hear your views do you do you think this could be worse than 2008 well it's different um you know in 2008 as you know very well julia we were worried about private label mortgages and people ran away from that asset class this caused bear and lehman to fail because they had been so heavily involved in that so it was really a credit story uh and the fed dropped rates the fed was accommodative while we were dealing with all of this here you have the Fed raising rates in a way we haven't seen since the 1980s. And at the same time, you know, credit in U.S. banks today is fine. It's actually quite, quite benevolent. But the problem is, is you have market risk. You have mark-to-market losses on the books of every bank in the country. And even though they're better now than they were in the third quarter, you follow the 10-year treasury that kind of gives you a sense for where things are in terms of securities mark-to-market, but then they have this huge loan book. And if you look at First Republic, the key thing about that loan book is that it wasn't that it had big credit losses, not at all. The credit's pristine. The problem is the coupons are too low. The coupons are a point below where the market is. 
um, and, and other large banks. So if you have to now take that portfolio out and sell it, Julia, you're going to lose 20 cents on the dollar. That's what the Fed has done. It's, it's fundamentally different in 2008, and that's why it's so hard for people to get their minds around this, because they think, well, the Fed can't possibly do that. They would never do that, right? Yeah, they did, because they don't understand the bond market. They didn't understand the repercussions of what they did in 2019 and 2020. And unfortunately, you know, we saw this during the hearing. The members asked the vice chairman of the Fed, did you do a cost-benefit analysis? Did you do an analysis of what would happen if you raised interest rates? And the answer was no. Yeah. Like you point out, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around it. And you also point out like a lot of folks just don't understand the bond market um, and bond not, math. Not our equity peeps. I mean, equity peeps look at stocks and earnings. Banks are a fixed income trade. Mm. That masquerades as an equity trade, but it's not really. It's a bond trade. So it's to put it in very simple terms for folks who don't, they just don't follow the bond market. They don't have that interest. Like how would you, how would you describe it? Like if you were just going to talk to like, like my parents, for example, or something, if you're just going to like say the problem or sum it up for, for them, how would you just sum it up? Well, I would say the Fed raised rates too far and too fast, and they've left the banks with big losses that they are going to have trouble dealing with. It, you really haven't had a, a situation like this for the U.S. banking system, really, in, in modern times. This is a, a Fed-induced problem that came about because they wanted to fight inflation in a very conventional, old-fashioned sort of way. But they wanted to also ignore the fact that they had bought $9 trillion worth of securities. And by doing that, they, they distorted the money markets very badly. Um, I think Americans know that. Everybody who went out and got a 3% mortgage in 2021 understands that that's not normal. But the implications for banks is that many of them are insolvent. Yeah, not normal as you put it too. Um, I want to try to squeeze two more questions in if you don't mind. Um, no. On this well, show... Think of it this way. My mortgage, if I took it out to sell it today, I'd probably get 80, 88 cents on the dollar because of the 3% coupon. Okay? Mm -hmm. Banks can't take 10-point losses, Julia. No. They can't. It just doesn't work. Yeah. So, yeah, but go ahead. I was going to ask because on this show, um, one of the things that's come up many times is commercial real estate and yes. a lot of like the regional banks have exposure to that. I'm just curious, like from your vantage point, how are you thinking about that risk? We will be talking about credit losses in the third and fourth quarter of this year. Mostly we will be focused on commercial properties. Banks tend to own the senior mortgage position in those assets. And then you'll have equity on the part of the developer, usually 50% equity. But a lot of these legacy buildings in the big cities, Julie, are going to get wiped out. They're going to be restructured simply because people are not coming to work. They're not using those assets the way we did. And I think this was a change that was coming a long time ago. It was just that COVID gave us an opportunity to make a change and kind of not go back. So, you know, I think commercial this time is going to be leading the parade in terms of credit losses. Residential, no. I mean, uh, you still can't lose money on it on a prime residential mortgage right now because home prices still haven't fallen very much. So this is different from 08. 08 was about residential mortgages. This is going to be about commercial mortgage exposures. Banks are going to feel it. Bond investors are going to feel it. 
Uh, the CMBS market, where they sell a lot of commercial mortgages to investors, is going to feel it. And in REITs, there's an awful lot of private real estate investment trusts out there that hold this paper on behalf of a developer. Okay, so you don't hear about them much, but you're going to hear the screaming, definitely. Because these deals are going to, they're going to wipe the equity and have to restructure the deal and then put new equity in if they don't want to walk away. You know, in a lot of cases, Julia, you're going to have tenants making the decision here. In other words, they're going to walk away from the building and then the developer is going to give up. They're going to hand the keys to the bank and the bank doesn't want the building. So this is about commercial this time, this time around. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen Look any. Look at New York. Yet. You've had a lot of building in New York over the last 15 years, largely mm -hmm. because they thought Albany was going to change the rules for new development in New York City. So they all rushed in. It was a herd movement. Then we had COVID, and you have this huge change in use case for those buildings. And we can't turn them into resi. The only thing we can do is knock them down. So that's the economics of this for L.A., New York, San Fran, of course, and I, I don't know what we do. We're going to have to redevelop these cities for other use cases. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know like what we do either, and I'll definitely have you on at some point again, like when this starts to play out. Um, one final question. We have the FOMC. We'll have the presser with uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Um, what are your expectations or what would you like to hear or see in the messaging um, from Powell? Well, Powell and the staff of the Fed are going to try and continue to have the focus on inflation and on the narrative. In other words, on their model, if you will. I think, however, if he doesn't start to talk to both the Congress and the public, about what's been going on in the banking system, he's going to lose control of the situation. You cannot have uh, regulators cobbling together uh, sales of busted banks over the weekend uh, and remain credible with the public. So I think members of Congress are very concerned. I've been hearing from a number of members in both parties who've just been reaching out to try and understand what's going on here. And I think the Fed is going to finally have to admit that their hands are tied they can't raise interest rates to five and a half or six percent. My sense is you really want to, you know, back this off so we don't have a banking crisis later this year, Julia. Maybe get Fed funds back down to three and a half, no more, and then start selling securities. Let's get the long end of the curve behaving normally again, uh, and then I think you could work your way out of this. But if they continue this very doctrinaire march towards a 6% Fed funds rate, then we're going to have more bank failures. And I don't think either Yellen or, or uh, Powell can survive another uh, bank failure. I really don't. Yeah. Well, Chris, I've really enjoyed having you on and I'm grateful for your time. I want to just give My you um, another uh, quick 60 seconds, if you want, um, to let folks know where they can find you on social, uh, learn more about your firm, any of your sure. writing. I know you have a book you're working on and any <laughs> parting thoughts that we didn't bring up in this very brief uh, episode. Yeah. No, sure. I'm Christopher Whalen. I write uh, The Institutional Risk Analyst. I also publish a column for National Mortgage News. I spend a lot of time in the mortgage market, unfortunately. Uh, but this gives me a perspective on interest rates. And then um, I'm on Twitter at rcwhalen.com and LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I couldn't figure that one out. Uh, but anyway, I look forward to uh, hearing questions. I always try and post answers to questions from our readers on Twitter. So it, it makes it a lot of fun.
I love that. Well, Chris Whalen, great to see you. Chris Whalen, uh, chairman Likewise. of Whalen Global Advisors. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Have a great rest of your day, Chris. Anytime, Julia. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.